Welcome back to the pod, Blacklisted by God, the talk that has all the demons running amok, that seven heads, ten horns, the internet's only history of the devil in podcast format. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me, as always, is my friend and companion in heresy, Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you on this beautiful, cool, crisp December evening, at least where I am? (laughs) It's all. It's pretty much always cool and crisp in the evening where I am, and you pretty much always need a light jacket here, Klaus. So I am doing very well. I'm particularly excited about today's episode because we're going to be discussing this amazing article by someone you may have heard of, Klaus Yoder. That's right, my co-host. Um, the article was for and is for The Revealer which is a journal on religion and society that provides this awesome kind of meeting point where scholars, journalists, and freelance writers discuss how religion shapes and is shaped by race, sexuality, gender, politics, history, and culture. And honestly, I think your article fits right into the center of what the kind of material that they put out. So it's super exciting. Your article is called Cops and Clergy on TV, Catholicism, in the police procedural drama. And our readers, uh, readers, I mean, I'm sure you're going to become our readers, but right now you are our, our dear listeners, audience. our dear listeners, yeah. Our dear listeners can access this amazing content for free at therevealer.org. So please go check it out. The link is available in the description of this episode if you need help finding it. So Klaus, first of all, I wanna know, how did the idea for this article come about? Thank you, uh, and thanks for that intro. Yeah, this is this is not paywalled content. This is this is this is free, baby. Uh, this is some. This is some. N- it's for the this, The NYU money is flowing through this. They have the budget to to give it to us all for free, um, and to actually pay writers for doing research and writing, which is after coming from an academic background, like it's just like totally startling to be like, oh, like we will actually compensate you for your labor. Amazing. That is incredible and awesome. And I did not know that. Um, So I guess, Klaus, next time I come see you, dinner time. (laughs) Absolutely. We'll just cut it out of the check for this article. But yeah, so the idea for this article, it actually came out of listening to another podcast, uh, Sean McTiernan's Kiss Your Ass Goodbye, which was a podcast he did about hard-boiled radio mysteries. And for the last episode, which came out right around the killing of George Floyd last summer. He was doing an episode of Pat Novak, which was a a uh, Jack Webb show. 
it was a, it's actually one set in the Bay Area, Travis, which so maybe maybe for our San Francisco listeners can sort of dig into Pat Novak because all these old uh, 1940s, 1950s, 1930s radio mysteries are available for free on the internet. They're out of copyright. They're on uh, archive.org and, and such. Anyway, so they were doing, Sean was doing an episode uh, with, I believe his co-host, his, his guest co-host was, he was Jog. He's like a comic book guy, really smart, really cool. Um, anyway, they were doing this episode about Jack Webb and they were talking about Jack Webb and they were talking about it in the context of protests, live movement for Black Lives Matter protests, the torching of the Minneapolis police station. Like, like it, they were, and so they're talking about this icon of police procedurals, and they couldn't bring themselves to do a Dragnet episode, so they did one of these earlier episodes in in Jack Webb's career. Uh, and Jack Webb is the the auteur behind Dragnet. He's the star. He's got the he's got the flint crew cut, uh, the flinty crew cut. He is the person who partnered with the LAPD to get like the the sort of authentic material for his what started off as a radio show at Dragnet and became a syndicated television show with two at least two uh runnings it started the 1950s and then was revived as a way to like club hippies in the head in the late 60s and so Webb creates this partnership with the LAPD and they're like yeah we'll give you this like hot information but we get to have oversight so he got he basically got co-opted into being the propaganda wing of the LAPD, which had, you know, for you and I, like, we were young people when the Rodney King beating video came out. Like, the LAPD had, like, uh, or and the O.J. Simpson trial, where, like, you know, it's, it's becoming clear that, like, LAPD officers are, like, are neo-Nazis and such. Um, and, like, the LAPD's horrible reputation stretches way back uh, and coincides with the influx of black and brown populations in this booming economy and is this way to sort of preserve California as the white man's paradise to quote a white supremacist that I, I read recently in in Anthea Butler's white evangelical racism so yeah I was listening to this episode of kiss your ass goodbye and they were talking about Webb and his Catholicism and the ways in which police procedurals have this kind of ritualistic quality and they were really drawing out in their conversation that like this seems to like have a lot to do they, and both of them had uh, Sean's from Ireland he's, he's Irish and uh, and Jog also seems to have grown up in a in a U.S. Catholic context and both of them were like we were so drawn to this show because it mapped onto the kind of religiosity that we were used to practicing and seeing and that there was something about the ways in which these police characters are able to create their own contexts and instantiate reality and have this kind of something in a way that goes beyond merely having power to be like to be this manifestation of authority and and to have a a ritualistic system for producing the truth and saving the day and redeeming society like they, they, and, they and I was just totally taken with this and I started off doing my research on Dragnet and wanting to expand on this because this was just like a part of their conversation and a really good podcast. And I was like, there's a lot here. Um, so yeah, that's, that's how I got started. Wow. Um, that is 
super interesting. I did not know at all how you came to this and thought it was gonna come out of your teaching or something. So super, super interesting, a big surprise for me. Um, I wanna lean in a little bit. You have already started to talk about this, but the connection between the movement for black lives, um, police violence against black and brown people in particular, and this the relationship to Dragnet in particular. And you've started to reveal some of this already, but I think the argument can certainly be made isn't this just entertainment? Isn't this just TV? What does this have to do with actual street violence? How do we move from ideas in the popular consciousness um, in entertainment down to these acts of violence that we that we witness today? Yeah, I think that's a that's a good question. And I know I think it's it's so easy for pop culture to be dismissed as superficial. It's like oh, it's just. It's stupid. It often is very stupid. So, I mean, like, <laughs> there is that point. Um, but uh, I think it creates an environment. It creates, it becomes a saturation, something that saturates into you in terms of messaging. And especially when Dragnet was on, television was so much more dominant as a medium in comparison to how it is today. And so I think like having this pro-police messaging on and and dragnet was not of course not the only show that was doing this uh but like this was something that you know i i i don't i'm not totally sure on the statistics of 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 television ownership in mid 20th century i I think they were it was pretty high and especially back then when there was like three network two networks and then three like you would have a lot of people taking this stuff in and so it's just, you know, it's like sort of cultural hegemony, creating messaging, creating narratives. And I think it was a way to articulate and control nationalistic mythology or the, or if not totally nationalistic, at least the sort of civic or civil religious aspect of American self-understanding. And so, yeah, I think it was really important for that. What's so funny about Web 2, to go back to him for a second, is that things like Pat Novak or other things he did are more like film noir in the sense that they, they're like these detective things and they're dark and you only really get this solid copagandistic police procedural glorification of law enforcement in the post world war II era before world war II, this kind of crime entertainment was way more cynical, was way more pessimistic it usually involved the sort of solitary, almost existentialist anti-hero private detective. And so you have the shift from the private detective to the police department and the police system. And Webb just like rode that wave and made his career off of it. And so, wow. yeah, so just that's just, I think that's important to note. Um, but yeah, I mean, what do you think? I mean, in terms of like thinking about what work popular culture does in creating like, narratives i feel like i see like politicians you know we just we just survived maybe we maybe we survived there's maybe still more to come the the trump presidency where trump's just like regurgitating what was said on fox news but like there's also but so like that's just like messaging stuff but like i think even seeing the kind of messaging from police procedurals or other kinds of dramas or comedies it just becomes like part of the common sense of what people take for granted in terms of describing basic reality around them. But like, what do you think in terms of how impactful pop culture is, Travis? 
Yeah, I think I am going to carefully avoid falling into... Um, I don't want to sound really dumb right now, Klaus. Um, and I'm very afraid I'm about to. But what I would say is that pop culture is the water we swim around in. It is It provides tropes and narratives and stories that latch on so easily to the way we analyze both unconsciously and consciously the world around us. And so we have to pay particular attention to these media, especially when we're talking about um, social groups and especially when we're talking about race and class. And so I think it is entirely appropriate to look at these, this copaganda, not a term I knew before this conversation, (laughs) very excited to use it. Um, that I think this is the right place to take it especially seriously. Because, of course, you know, we should use different measures for different kinds of popular media and those relationships. But I think in this particular conversation, you've already laid out a very convincing argument for why it matters to these, um, our, our sort of real-life experience of violence, particularly in Black and brown communities. So... Is it is what you're telling me essentially that everyone who watches Law and Order that everyone is a Republican? Is that what you're saying? There was a there was a sociological study that did find a high correlation of police procedural viewership and conservative politics. But anecdotally, I know so many people who are left wing or center left who love Law and Order, who love police procedurals. My my good friend Trevor Strunk is actually doing a Patreon, like, for his podcast, No Cartridge, is doing, like, a a walkthrough of Homicide, Life in the Streets from the 90s, just, like, analyzing these episodes and just, and and sort of just talking about, like, this this is David Simon before he did The Wire, and, and sort of looking at this really bleak portrayal of homicide investigation in Baltimore. So I, I, so, no, that's the thing. It's, it's what's, that's what's interesting about it to me. That's one of the things that's interesting, and like, like with that original podcast with, with uh, Sean McTiernan, these are people who are super left wing, and still consume genre fiction and genre media, and like, and especially like a genre media product like a procedural, or a, a hard boiled novel or something like that, or crime dramas, they tend to be by default very conservative. And yet there's an aesthetic appeal to people. And I, I, I don't have the answer exactly as to why, but I think it has to do with, with gender to some degree, that there is, that there are these kinds of roles that are modeled that even if you want to reject them, you still are in some ways captured by the aesthetic. And even if you want to watch them ironically or you think it's like really funny or like over the top or even like sort of too put on, like it, I think that's part of it to some degree. Yeah, um, I'm not not asking because my partner watches Law and Order when I'm not around. So that wasn't personal in any way. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, speaking for myself, I love me some mid-century British like murder mysteries that are definitely not the same as police procedurals. They um, have their own procedurals, though, and so do like the Scandinavian ones. And Germany, Germany has an amazing procedural called Tatort, or crime scene, 
where each city and region gets their own like law and order like it's like it's 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 tailored to each city and autonomy it, like there's a there's like a bavarian oh yeah and yeah, stuff, yeah, or? yeah yeah it's wow. awesome yeah okay amazing um yeah so so i don't have any personal insight really on the question but i'm I was really taken in your article about the connection between, you know, beliefs about law and order, the concepts, and watching the, this kind of entertainment, which gets back to, you know, what are we doing? How do we self-select these um, these narratives as fans? What are the different ways of interacting in them? And how does it touch on or not our politics? Um, but you write, uh, you're citing this Guardian critic, David Stubbs, yeah. um, in the article, who who writes... The detectives may trudge somberly from one improbable homicide scene to another, week in, week out, as the blue lights circle bleakly. But we, the viewers, sink gleefully into our sofas, ready to drink it in like cocoa. It's a parlor game, a ritual. And I was so taken by this explanation yeah, of what it means yeah. to be like how do how are people engaging with this material because as we've pointed out already there are multiple ways of you know there are multiple reasons people are drawn to this particular genre what's going on here but this idea of ritual seemed like an important one for you and for thinking about um the genre but also in particular about like relations between cops on the one hand and priests on the other as we'll get into a little bit later yeah yeah, and it's interesting because it's not my ritual. Like, I, I wrote this piece. I'm not a procedural fan. And I think maybe that helped me, like, like the cliche of, like, critical distance. But it, it actually made me more interested to learn more about it because I actually am – I have been more drawn to, like, yeah, the British mystery thing or film noir or these old radio mysteries. I like the private detective, the kind of more cynical – world weary thing i find procedure a lot of procedures just really boring and the morality like as we'll get into like reprehensible um <laughs> sure uh but yeah the the sort of comparison to like at once it's like a ritual and you think of of church or synagogue or or or, or a temple of some sort a mosque but then like drinking it in like cocoa it's like very domestic and i mean like i have that experience of with like uh jeremy brett Sherlock Holmes series where like my whole family is just like drinking tea and like trying to feel, trying to feel like we're from the United Kingdom <laughs> and, and watching these shows. <laughs> this is like how we showed, how we performed our culturedness to ourselves or something. Um, and I like, yeah, that was great. And I don't know. I think that's also why this media pop culture stuff is important because it's like these accessible ways to perform culture and to affirm these things about ourselves and to, have something to talk about and to have something to laugh about and to just have something to do when you're bored. Uh, yeah. I, it's, I think it's very powerful. Yeah. It's been a little bit shocking in these past two years where so many of us have been uh, locked in our homes. How often I conversations with friends have moved from what used to be, what did you do this weekend? You went out and did X, Y, and Z to So what are you watching? Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, a little bit sad, disturbing, but anyway. Well, that's for me. Um, I think it's also true. This ritual aspect of it, I think, has been heightened by and and the, the way and the way I can get into it now is I don't do like police procedural fandom, but I 
I follow the, like a professional basketball team. And so like, it's all that too. Like you're talking to other fans and you have like this whole range and world of references to share. And it's like internet fan culture, right? It's you, you have, you know, the jokes and, and you know, you, you, everyone's watching every game and tweeting along the whole time and, and, and they're the memes and stuff. Yeah. Like, so I, I get, even though I don't get police procedurals, uh, as a, as a, as a native language, I do get, you know, fandom and, and I, and I, I think it, yeah, it's, it really is something that deserves to be taken seriously, even as it's often not, I don't know. So I want to move now to talk a little bit about blue lives matter and the notion of self-sacrifice in the making of police identities, both real and fictional. And in particular, how you relate this conversation to Dragnet and its representation of its storylines as truth with a capital T. You know the opening line. The story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. Protect the innocent, but who gives a shit about the, the criminals? That's always like sort of what is implied. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that I was thinking about with Dragnet and with the way it ties into American mythology is Webb has this sort of very pronounced kind of Catholic outlook on things. And so there are all these episodes of Dragnet that I think Webb and his collaborators use as a way to sort of define what the police, like who the police are and what they should mean to you by juxtaposing them with clergy, in particular Catholic clergy. And like that was a puzzle. And my editor was asking about this, like, well, like Catholics have been a minority in this country. There's a lot of anti-Catholicism. Like why, how is it that police become compared to Catholic clergy, a a subject position that has often at different times caused a lot of consternation and anxiety in the United States, especially in the 19th and the early 20th century through, you know, up until uh, Irish and Italians and Polish people were, were allowed to be white in the post-World War II moment. Right. Um, So, yeah. And I think it has a lot to do with the sort of the cultural script of, of cops especially, you know, a lot of these shows take place in big cities, like big city cops being Irish Americans. And this is sort of a, there's, there's truth to this. There were a lot of, and there are a lot of Irish American police, but this story of like, this is how the Irish assimilated. This is how they made their way in the world. They became police. They, they, they banded together. It's like Jack Nicholson and the departed. It's like, because he's, he's an Irish gangster in the movie. And he's like, you know, in the beginning we had the church, which is just another way of saying we had each other. The sense like becoming part of the city government, becoming part of the municipal structure through basically becoming like an official, like a, a recognized and legal paramilitary force and, and a force for electioneering was the way in which the Irish found their way into, uh, into power and respectability. Though not exactly respectability, because before the 1950s, the figure of the police officer was the Keystone cop. And it was, again, to sort of link to the Irish stereotype was a, a, a ridiculous stereotype, was, was someone ridiculed. So th- there was a period where it's like, oh, the, like these Irish cops are clowns. Um, and then it became like, 
they're like rugged individuals and they're dirty hairy and they're like i don't give a damn if i'm going to prison i'm killing the serial killer right now fuck it and so what webb does is he sort of he's coming into the middle of that and he's comparing and he himself was catholic and so he's comparing these people as an institution as the sort of policing institution to the another institution of priests and both of these institutions are institutions where the 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 people fulfilling a vocation are doing so with the sort of theoretical proviso that they are tools of a higher power, that they are instruments of a higher power, that law enforcement is just the thing, the, the, the institution, the bureaucracy, the, 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 the arm of the law. It isn't the law itself. It's the thing that enforces the law. And just as with the clergy in the, the, the Catholic theory of the priesthood, these people are animate instruments of the Holy Spirit. The, the priest becomes, the priest serves in the person of Christ when performing the Eucharist, but that's virtually, that's, that's, that doesn't, you know, and this gets really complicated, especially in like cultures of abuse and the abuse of power in the Catholic church, where it's like, well, this priest is equal sign Jesus, but like the sort of technical language is like, Jesus is working through them, through their person. And we talked about this with the Donatist controversy. Like, this is the whole thing, right? Where it's like, who you are as a person doesn't matter. You're an instrument. You're a sacramental instrument. And so, like, there is, again, that parallel between instrumentality that I keep coming back to in the last few episodes that is a a linking point between the police and the clergy. I'm not saying that's why Jack Webb went there. But I think, like, this sense of being adjacent to power, being being the good tool of truth, justice in the American way or whatever. Like that's, that's what's going on. Yes. I think the emphasis might be more on agents, less on in, in the phrase, let's say agents of moral good. The emphasis might be more on the moral good and less on the agent here. But I think you are absolutely right in your, in your parallel and that that is exactly how it happens in both cases and it's brilliant um i'm gonna dumb things down a little bit and talk about big little jesus (laughs) which is one of the dragnet episodes that i began with and was very confused by because it's actually a small part of your article and i was like why does he want me to watch this because it's a christmas episode i ended up (laughs) i ended up loving it because a it's the christmas episode so seasonally appropriate yes um First of all, I just want to talk about a kind of startling dynamic from the beginning of the episode. Um, The message I got from it was that you should get married. Um, So Joe Friday's partner is married and he is single. And they're talking about part of the priesthood thing, too, because Joe Friday has no personal life. And it's just like, again, like, so, yeah, anyway. (laughs) And, And he's the better cop for it, according to the show, you know. Yes, he's the star. He actually, he has the rank too, right? He's sergeant and the other guy's not. So he has to write his own Christmas cards. And, you know, the message of this little interaction is, oh, you should get married so that you don't have to do that. That's like women's work and bad. Um, And you should also, when you're considering what gift to give the girl you might be interested in, you should definitely go for something romantic. It should not be stationary. And Joe Friday makes that mistake because he doesn't understand romance and the gestures he's supposed to do because his 
he is busy self-sacrificing. He is a cop through and through. He is not a romantic hero. And oof, it was just all the gender dynamics there were super interesting. Um, that is not, though, what I was supposed to be watching. So I was not paying attention, I think. Although I think that perfect cop part. Um, oh, no, it all goes together. It role, all goes together. Right? It does it all work, goes together, right? Yeah. So, but I, I do want to get to the main plot line in the episode, which is about a theft, right? So are they, they're in the like robbery division. I forgot thefts and robberies or something is the department that Joe Friday is working in, at least in this part of the show, it seems. Yeah. He's kind of all over the map. It's not homicide. He he solves everything. I figured he moved around, but in the, in this episode, he's covering a theft of a maybe not so expensive item. There's a crush scene, a nativity scene in the Catholic church that's at, it's in downtown LA. It is where it's dedicated to Our Lady of the City of Angels, right? It's sort of um, a historic church, an important church. And it's interesting how ethnic identity gets melded into the episode too, because it's the church of the Mexican immigrants. Mm -hmm. And we see one of them and they are poor and all that's very important to the episode. Because this missing baby Jesus, there's like, we're, we're shadowing the, the suspect who's an adult who has had trouble maybe with drugs and alcohol, and, um, but he's on the, on the mend and he's joined the choir. That's how you know he's good. If you sing in a church choir or like a community choir, then you are a good person, apparently, according to the show, which is probably true, honestly. So anyway, um, the, it turns out that the thief is none other than this little boy. I should totally tell you. Oh, Paquito. So Paco is his name. And little Paquito comes in with his, and it's it's Christmas Eve or it's, yeah, maybe it's the day of Christmas Eve. And, and they haven't found the guilty party. And in comes little Paco. And he's got his radio flyer, his red wagon that he's dragging in. And lo and behold, on it is the baby Jesus that's been missing. Oh, my gosh. How exciting. The, the crime has been solved. This child stole baby Jesus. But why did he do it? And here we go into Spanish, which is also really interesting, I think. Um, so the padre and the little boy have a conversation. And it turns out that... He, the, he had prayed to the baby Jesus that if he got his wagon for Christmas, he would let baby Jesus take the first ride in the wagon. So he was fulfilling his promise to baby Jesus. And there's this important plot point where, well, how is he getting his, his Christmas presents before Christmas? Turns out because they're like from a charity. And so he's getting these. You know, yeah. So that's how, yeah. because he's poor. So we had to explain that. And then everyone goes home happy. And um, I think the ending line was something like um, uh, the the priest says something about, you know, well, they're really, you know, his family is poor. And then Joe Friday goes, are they father? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like this, like the noble salt of the earth, like don't invest in welfare, but make sure the money goes to the police department because being poor is not really a bad thing if you're spiritual. <laughs> yeah. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or, or blessed are the poor. Which one is that? Which gospel translation do you use? Anyway, um, but I wanted to ask you about this, this conversation about um, stealing and thieves that happens between the priest and um, the cops. And it's like the 
priest makes some comment like, oh, it's crazy how quickly men turn to thievery and stealing and whatnot. Um, and then there's this moment where this they're colluding. Do you remember this? Class? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It, because, right, the priest is like, oh, it's a bummer that people steal. How, like, they, they learn to steal so fast. It's, it's really unfortunate. And Joe Friday's like, but father, think about us for a second. And the priest is like, what do you mean us? And Friday's like, if some of them didn't, you and me would be out of work. <laughs> and it's, 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 again, like this is the whole part of the juxtaposition is that Webb almost wants to be, seems to be saying like that they're two sides of the same coin, that priests are the spiritual side of, of society's authoritative, like a sort of hierarchical order and the police are their exact analog in terms of the world of civil government and and law enforcement, because both yeah they're they're all the good guys right Klaus well, and the, like when we're dividing the, the world into good guys and bad guys we we know who the good guys are because they're priests we know that they're good guys because they're cops and they're and they're it's they're good guys but they're also the people who have to deal with the people who aren't good like it's it, their their function is defined by people not following the moral law. And so Friday's like, we're one and the same. And the priest's like, I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. This is the city, Los Angeles, California. I work here. I carry a badge. So I also want to talk about the rather terrifying episode where Joe Friday and his partner go to a TV show called Speak Your Mind, because, you know, this is normal stuff for cops to, you know, be on TV, right? Uh, And in this TV show within a TV show, they defend the police against accusations that the police are racist and classist. That one felt prescient. Well, yeah, and it really, it's because like this episode airs after MLK's assassination, after the uprisings that followed that, after like this is like the fall. This is the season premiere after a summer, like Whoa. that is the summer of 1968. So this is Dragnet's answer to political assassinations, massive uprisings, the impending victory of Richard Nixon. You know this is this is where we are and. You know, a lot of that does seem very similar to what was happening in 2020 when I look at some of the other season openers of police procedurals in the wake of the Black Lives Matter protests and the various uprisings that happened around the country. So, yeah, it, it's pression is right. It, it's, you know, and obviously, like, history repeating itself is a dumb cliche, but, like, we have some structural issues in this country that we have not worked through, <laughs> I would say. Unaddressed issues are not the same. It's not the same as history repeating itself so much as it is like issues that were never resolved. Patterns, patterns of well. abuse, right? And trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, so I don't know if you know, but Seven Heads, Ten Horns is a history of the devil. I was wondering if you felt that there was any figure who represented things demonic or evil, and if so, why, in this particular episode? In a democracy, 
The minority has the right to convince the majority that laws should be changed. But that does not give the minority the right to ignore the laws that exist. And there cannot be a majority of one. A killer's conscience tells him it's okay to murder. What happens to your majority of one then? Without laws and the people to enforce them, you've got anarchy, haven't you? The law of the jungle. Now, an awful lot of people have bled and died for an idea called democracy. An idea that people are better than animals and that a civilized nation is better than a jungle. A lot of people are still fighting and dying for that belief. A lot of them wear badges because they believe in those American ideals. My name is Mondo Mabamba. I'm the president of the Black Widow Party, and I'm here to tell you, hunkies, where you can put all that bull about democracy. <laughs> Y'all a bunch of Nazis, only you don't dress as sharp. <laughs> not, not near as sharp, man. You boys drive through Watts, and all you want to do is catch one of us alone so you can work us over or blow our heads off. You tell us about that, Mr. Charlie, and tell us good. Because I've been there, man. I've been there. So the person we just heard is the answer to that question. This is this is who the creators of Dragnet think a Black Panther, Black Radical activist leader is. The character is named Mondo Mabamba. Yeah, Mondo Mabamba, he... So a bunch of people get up. And the way this show works is like there's two lefties who are facing off against the two cops. And the one lefty is a professor because... As, uh, as I don't know, I think it was J.D. Vance recently opined, professors are the enemy. So, you, you know, that's, that's, that's where we are right now. And so <laughs> one professor and uh, one radical journalist and like a bunch of people in the audience get up and they're, and they're complaining about the police and they're complaining about this. And like someone's like, why can't we be legal? And things like that. Uh, flash forward to the future. It is. Uh, but anyway, um, and uh we get to a certain point and like, and like all of the grievances have been like pretty okay. Like some white guy gets up and he's like, it's outrageous how civil rights or civil liberties are being violated. He looks like a young Republican, but he, oh, he's, totally. he but he's like a stoned young Republican. It's a little confusing. His affect is a little confusing. And he starts like, talk, they start talking about like, you know, Henry David Thoreau and stuff like that. And, and these sorts of things. And that part's actually useful because Henry David, he's the, the, the students like invoking Thoreau to say like, oh, if they're bad laws, we have to break them. And Joe Friday's like, oh, like you like the laws that protect your civil rights, but you don't, you don't like the laws that, you know, this sort of like law is sacred thing. Oh, so anyway. It was so bad. It was so bad. So this is all pretty tame until the one and only black character to speak in this episode gets up. And it's Mondo Mabamba, who we just heard. And... Mondo has these sunglasses that are always on, blue shades. They're blue is almost as if they're the color of his prey, I would say. They're the they sort of, the color of his shades match the, the 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 kind of people he's trying to hunt as the episode wants us to see. And so if the priests are working and serving in the person of Christ and Dragnet is secularizing that and making the police the sacrificial victims who serve the body politic. And so they are sort of instantiating Christ or uncle Sam or however you want to parse that. Then Mondo Mabamba is Satan as in the accuser figure, because he, he, he calls them Nazis, badly dressed Nazis. And he's, he's just, he's just like, you just kill and beat up people in the ghetto. Like what good are you? And 
and then he's taunting them and he's like oh and you guys only because this is this is key to los angeles it's obviously not only a city of angels but a city of automobiles and the police are in auto patrols and so mabama's like oh you're like you're cowards too you can't even walk a, you can't even walk a beat and and joe friday like sort of shown to be a little naive is like oh well we're working on that we're gonna get cops back in the neighborhood and like Mondo Mabamba's like licking his chops, you know, he's like, yeah, send them out. And, he, and you see, there's a part where it cuts to his, his, uh, his comrades who are in the front line who are like nodding and Mondo Mabamba kind of gives them like a little nod. And, and you're, you're supposed to understand that like, yeah, we're waiting for these police to, to show up so we can kill them. And so again, it's like, we're, we're back in the economy of sacrificial victims where it's like the police are like, oh, we're just trying to partner with responsible black neighborhood authority figures. And, oh, the Black Panthers or whatever these people are supposed to be are going to be there and they're going to kill us. And we're innocent and they're evil. And that's, for me, that was like the real demonic thing. The other thing is that Mondo Mabamba with his shades really looks a lot like Boss Godfrey from Cool Hand Luke, the man with no eyes, who is like, if... If Paul Newman's character, if Luke is the Christ figure, then that guy's that guy's the, the demonic figure, right? As not having eyes is like kind of creepy and scary and stuff. So yeah, that's that is my tie into the themes of the podcast. Um, that Manu Mabamba is supposed to be the Black Panther Satan of conservative police procedural hell. I rest my case. I also, yeah, yeah. I'm well. We'll let the jury decide uh, your fate. I also wanted to briefly mention that there was a very strange part of this episode where a Mexican-American guy is like, hey, why are the cops biased against Mexican-Americans? And then the only way this could make sense, according to the rationale of the cops, is that he must, he's like, well, what happened? Did you try to get into the police department? And of course, he psychically knows that that was indeed the problem. And that the reason given, well, oh, it's because you're under five foot eight inches tall or whatever the height requirement is for the police officer. Right. Yeah. So right in, so wild. For, in Dragnet, right, black people are scary, dangerous. Uh Latina people are to be paternalized and right. are the wards of the state and are not really adults. So yeah, that's that's the that's the racecraft that's going on here. Um just to be Yeah, clear. yeah. It was it was striking. Um, yeah. Anyway, I would like to move briefly now to Mayor of Easttown. And it's not, not because... We're jumping ahead like 50 years, this. right? Like we're going for like... Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you're, you're welcome, everyone. Yeah. And it's not not because I really enjoyed this show while doing research for the podcast. That's not why I want to talk about it, even though you talked about lots of yeah, other Yeah, pleasure shows. is outlawed um, in this podcast. Like, no one's allowed to have any Pleasure fun. is outlawed. Yeah. You're not allowed to enjoy any part of any TV show. Um, so we should talk about how it is both completely amazing and also how it falls prey to some of the same patterns that you discuss in your article, uh, you know, reaching back to mid-century TV. But it's also still amazing. But... It's also bad. So you write, even in this talent-packed, emotionally complex series, the partnership between the police and the priesthood as stewards and redeemers of our predominantly white community continues unabated. And here, I think you maybe were just referring in particular to the deacon who shows up. By the way, super confused about the deacons here. Side note. Uh, deacons 
can get married. And these guys just acted a lot like priests. And I was like very confused about what Catholic deacons in Pennsylvania are like and like what what's going on there. Do you have any insight? Not a ton because that was my experience as well is that deacons had not taken vows of celibacy. There's also the, so my understanding is that there's the tra- transitional diaconate so that on your way to becoming a priest, exactly. you are a deacon at one point. Yeah. Um, but then there's also like a vocational diaconate. So, but these guys, I, like they didn't strike me as like new to the, to the call. Like they had well, had, they'd moved from parish to parish. Well, I think Mer- right? Mare's, Mare's cousin is a priest. And the other guy, Deacon Mark is maybe in transition like he's on that sort of transitional role, like in the process of becoming ordained. That was my impression. Okay. Um, All right. But yeah, any, well, anyway. Yeah, so like mayor of Easttown, mayor uh, Kate Winslet is a police detective in what's supposed to be a Delaware County, what people call Delco, uh, like a, that's a community in suburban Philadelphia that's been ravaged by the epidemic of opioids and that plays a part in some of the some of the plot points uh just to clarify mayor is is not the head of city government yeah this is, is very confusing for yeah. her first name yeah it's very confusing uh it is short for her first name which i believe is marianne i believe that's but she right. goes by mayor yeah it goes by mayor, mary yeah. something anyway she goes by mayor yeah. please continue spelled spelled like the female horse yeah also interesting yes right so she is a good detective she likes to cut corners sometimes and take unnecessary risks. She has not been able to find the daughter at the start of the show. She's not been able to find the daughter who's gone missing of one of her friends and teammates because she's a, a star high school basketball player. That's the other thing she she's she can't get past, she can't get out from underneath her own shadow, her own like eighteen year old self shadow, and that's sort of like humiliating for her. But so she is seen as and like she messes up for other reasons like she tries to get her her daughter-in-law put away by planning drugs on her like she does a lot of very ethically questionable things deacon mark is a suspect in the main murder that's the sort of center of the mystery of the show and so both mayor and deacon mark find their way to redemption by the end of the series like mayor solves on the murders mayor mayor sort of clears the air in the town they're all like inexplicably and improbably packing this Catholic church to all be there together for Deacon Mark. Oh, yeah, that was, yeah. It's for, so for, for Deacon Mark to like give his sermon about the town, like the town seeking forgiveness and sort of like being able to like sort of re- be reborn spiritually. And so like, there's this parallel between like this, the sort of pastoral and sacramental work of the clergy and the gritty, violence of the state that mayor embodies and so like yeah the show like like the acting's great they're good plot twists i'm from southeast pennsylvania it, it sort of tries very hard to score authenticity points there's like shots in wawa and just the way people dress and the accent the, the famously difficult accent the water you know that that sort of thing and so it, it really does it works hard and like it's very compelling it's very sad. It's very psychological. Like, would you call it hardworking and self-sacrificing? All, yeah, all of the above. Yeah, exactly. Like a <laughs> like like a, like a local mayor for re-election. All like all like like all of the above. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So it's 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 really good. Like it's good television, but like if if 
I don't. I was actually shocked how much it fell into the conventions of the priest cop matrix that procedurals have apparently like lived and died on for the last fifty years. Yeah. Um, race relations were also sort of interesting. Right. There are a lot of like supportive, very helpful black characters, but like. Yes. They are all ancillaries. They are not like fully formed human beings in the show, I would say. That would that's they're, they're there to like make the white people look good. <laughs> no. Yeah, and their relationships, you know, across racial lines are totally decontextualized. Yeah, so yeah. it's like did you all go to the same high interesting? I mean like and you became friends in the same high school? Like that's great and interesting. And how did that come about? And we never get any insight yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Um Oh, well, but that and I think that point about the ancillary because the ancillary quality of those black characters actually ties it into the other one of the other procedurals I looked at, which was Law and Order SVU. And so like Mayor's boss, like the chief is 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 a black man. And this pattern of like the black boss trying to keep the well-intentioned and the protagonist of the show in line and safe, but also like wise to what's going on is something that gets, that's also in law and order SVU's 2020 season opener, which is loosely based on the central park bird watching incident uh, that happened. Like, was it like days before the George Floyd murder? Uh, Like it was all like right at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So yeah, that's. I, I feel like there is an interesting way in which, in the Law and Order show, it's uh, Benson, the, the the sort of the main, the long suffering main detective, the heartthrob detective of SVU. Yes, Captain Olivia Benson. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like she has to come face to face with the possibility that maybe she has unconscious racial bias. <gasps> what? Right. How could that be? Only bad people have un- unconscious racial bias, Klaus. Right. And so like this is the show is all about the trauma of white people like coming face to face with the, the the merest possibility that maybe they're not perfectly innocent all the time. And so the show is like trying to metabolize that and it's very deliberately shown as being like during COVID and also very intentionally being shown as at, in the aftermath of the events surrounding George Floyd's death and the protests and the debates about defund the police. And so the show is trying to show these police officers doing some soul searching, but it's also trying to apologize for the system and to make as clear as possible to all of the NBC viewers that if you defund the police, then you are giving the criminals what they want. (laughs) Right. Wow. So getting right back to Dragnet and that, which was, you know, a subject of debate in that show. Like, what are you good for anyway? Why do we need police? Like that idea um, was there too. Good. Um, I want to talk a little bit about individualism, Klaus. There's one way that some of the shows we've talked about dodge the systematic critiques of the police as agents of some of the worst impulses in society and especially racism. Um, one of the 
the ways that these shows try and kind of get around that is by arguing that, oh, well, there are a few bad apples, maybe on a police force, etc. Um, and that's why, that's how we can explain these incidents of, let's say, police brutality against black people. But as you so aptly point out, that's not where individualism ends in these shows. It has this kind of, individualism has two sides to it in these shows. What are those sides, Klaus? Yeah, and this this goes back to SVU because, right, like with Benson coming face-to-face with her the potential for unconscious racial bias, what Law & Order does is to say what these police and what it has black characters ventriloquizing. It has these black characters who become the new clergy of like moral wokeness that the show is so paranoid about. It has those characters say to well-intentioned white women like Benson, you need to work on yourselves. The guardians of society need to do a major inventory, self-inventory. And it's to say like the pursuit of systemic change to these state violence apparatuses is irrelevant because that gives the bad guys what they want. What really needs, like, these, the, the, the reaction to George Floyd's death is appropriate, but what it calls for is greater self-scrutiny of individuals. It, it calls for this, this, yeah, like, self-policing and self-surveillance rather than calling into question the deployment of state violence in the sort of the broadest ways in which it is, is used. Um, and so, yeah, like, right, what, leg, like, these legendary police procedurals and shows and movies like Dirty Harry, The Wire, Mayor of Easttown, you have these like maverick cop is actually used like almost as like a term of affection in these shows because they cut corners. They're not being brought down by the bureaucracy. They're, and this is like sort of goes back to a almost a post-60s paranoia about bureaucracy as corrupt and morally, like basically amoral and basically destructive and inauthentic. It's like you need right. heroes. You need individual heroes who will go do the right thing. Dirty Harry's just going to blow the serial killer away. Whatever. Like these te- these legal technicalities are bullshit. You need a strong man with a large magnum force to inflict justice upon the evildoers. And yes, I know how that <laughs> sounds. Because uh, that, that's certainly the subtext of the movie. Um but right, and like it's all just about making this a story of isolated, atomized, neoliberalized individuals and pushing you to not think about the structural arrangements that actually rob people of life. So there is a new trend in a few TV shows that you mentioned briefly in the article, but I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit more about, and that is the idea of principled black patriotism as headlining some of these shows. What did you mean by that? And could you give us maybe an example? Yeah. And I think that builds off this point where there is this juxtaposition of clerical and pastoral roles with police roles. And in especially the law and order episode, it's black police characters who are doing that kind of moral pastoral work of really like advising and almost hearing the confessions of unconscious racial bias because which the kind of doesn't make sense because it's unconscious then they can't you can't really confess it in a straightforward way but like like anyway whatever like they're doing that clerical thing but the other thing they do is 
is uh, especially in the t- the show I was thinking most about there was, and I didn't have room for it in this article, but what is is SWAT, the, the special weapons and tactics thing. This is a remake of a show from the 70s. And I don't believe the show in the 70s had a black lead. This one does. Uh, his name is Hondo. He's like... He looks like very, very attractive. He's yeah. He's like a model. <laughs> he looks like a cross between like a GQ model and like a NFL defensive end. Like that's that's sort of his yeah. vibe. It's unreasonable. It's unreasonable how attractive he is. Yes. Yeah. True. So yeah. So like Hondo, and so this like SWAT had also its 2020 summer of 2020 answer episode, and oh. it's fascinating because it gives Hondo's backstory as as coming of age during the 92 LA riots and being like, Oh, I want to be part of the, I want to be a part of the solution, not the problem. And that's how I got into the military. And that's how I got into policing. And I wanted to be, you know, it's like this sort of representation politics where it's like, Oh, like if black people are in these roles, then things are going to go better and we're going to represent the community and we're not going to be co-opted by the paramilitary death dealing machine thing. Right. And so it's him, like, and his father is actually more of a black skeptic and nationalist and and sort of, you know, really anti-police in a lot of these ways. So, like, a lot of the episode is it's about their, their confrontation. Uh, but, yeah, like, you have these, like, characters like Hondo who are not just doing the priestly thing, but are, like, action heroes. They're kind of combining it. But, like, Hondo in this episode, he has to, like he's like conflicted because he feels like the critique of the police coming out of uh, the, the protests is justified, but he also, he, he thinks that if he walks away, then he's going to lose all his power in the situation. Like, it's like, Oh, if you don't have the gun, you're not making a difference. But there's like this really crucial scene at the end that involves a mural. And this mural is super suggestive. I'm going to like, how can I share this with you? I don't know if I can share it with you. Um, I'm going to take a picture and send it to you. <laughs> that's, okay. the, that's the clunkiest way to do this. But like, it's the only thing I'm going to think of right now. So in this picture, we have various black people who have died violently. And I want to focus. So like we have... We had and the ones I want to really focus on, like so, the the right three: Breonna Taylor, twenty twenty; George Floyd, twenty twenty; David Dorn, twenty twenty. Do you know who David Dorn was? Okay, so no. David Dorn was a retired captain from the St. Louis Police Department. He was killed in June twenty twenty during uprisings while providing security for a pawn shop that was being broken into. And the right wing and Donald Trump latched onto this guy because it was their perfect rebuttal to the movement for black lives critique of police violence. It's to say like, look, this is a black cop who was killed by lawless rioters. You guys don't have a, a leg to stand up because you're killing black people too. Like this is like, this is how they peddled this. Right. And so, <laughs> sorry. Wow. Did you see, do you see the picture? Yeah. So so to to make all these people the sacred victims of black death basically to be like and th- this is a mural as far as I can tell I did some research. 
this was created by the show. This doesn't exist. Like this is this is <laughs> this is a fabrication. Wow. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if if I'm wrong about that, I, I mean, I I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to be to be corrected. But like as far as I could tell, this is this was this was designed on set. Okay. And so the the message is to say like, and this is Hondo's compromise, which is to say like, okay, like well, the black former police department person is the same as George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Like they're all victims of violence. The and it's almost like this weird way of saying, oh, like. They're good people on both sides, to quote our illustrious uh, President 45. And to be sure, I'm talking about David Dorn as the right-wing symbol, as the face on the mural, not as the actual human being. Like, David Dorn didn't ask to become a right-wing symbol. Like, we're talking about the symbolic representation of him, not the person himself. Right. So, like, this is basically triangulation. And and, and in terms of thinking about, like, atonement or... Or sort of being, or, or sort of like atoning for the sins of the police. Like Hondo isn't like hearing confessions of Benson's unconscious racial bias, but what he's doing is he's he's acting in the person of David Dorn, in persona David Dorn, uh, to be mm-hmm. to be the the black sacred police officer who is supposed to be the middle term between the victims of police violence and police who happen to be killed, or former like former police who happen to be killed in uprisings linked to in black death um so yeah there, there's a lot going there, this, this story could have been a lot longer <laughs> <laughs> wow well thanks for expanding on that i really was quite curious because i do think it shows how some of these shows are looking for kind of tight answers to systemic problems that seems to be the pattern that oh we have a complicated problem. Well, here's a black police officer. So that, that fixes that, right? A complicated problem. Well, it's, I see what you're saying, but it's really just some bad apples. Yeah. And these yeah. strategies are all aligned to. And they've been saying bad apples since that dragon episode. Like Joe Friday was talking right. about bad apples, right? Yeah. Like guys get out of the orchard. Like that's not what we're talking about. Or like maybe look at the orchard. <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible cliche here but you know um i think it's worth noting how these shows consistently refuse to take systemic critiques of police seriously and how we just struggle to find um, an example to the contrary which makes me wonder what would a TV show about cops look like if it took these critiques seriously? Well, I, We've only found examples where they don't, or it seems. And I think the closest thing, and I think like this is the, maybe so obvious, but like the one that is system oriented is the wire. Like that's the one that's about systems, but it's still the problem with storytelling is you need to have compelling characters. And if you have compelling characters, right. you start trying to sympathize with them. Right. And like, this is the mm-hmm. dynamic that plays into this whole thing. So even in the wire that is very interested sociologically in all of these overlapping like systems of power that create drug warfare and poverty and, and bad policing, you, like you, you still have these police, if not as heroes as antiheroes. And so I think that's part of the dynamic. I think my, like my friend Trevor would say like, that's why homicide's actually better because homicide makes the the police officers work appear all the more chaotic and sporadic 
and meaningless and hopeless and just like a nightmare. <laughs> um, and I think like maybe Tre- Trevor would say that that uh, homicide is the one to look at. But but yeah, but your question, like what would it look like for this to happen? I think it would be really like, and the thing is, but the thing has been done is to be like, oh, these cops are bad. These are bad people. Like the shield does that. The shield does like, oh, like this guy's bad, but like people love the villains, right? Like that's the whole thing. <laughs> it's perverse. So I think it would have to be, you would have to refuse like emotional engagement. It would have to, or like maybe that's too stark, but like it would have to really subvert expectations about dramatic closure and personal redemption stories, like constantly. Like that's just like off the cuff kind of way to respond to it. And it would have to like really look at the ugliness in a way that isn't just like, oh yeah, this is a tough racket, isn't it? It's a tough job. You know, like we're sacrificing so much and like it's so ugly. It's like, it would have to go past that. Right. I think frustrated narratives, you're onto something there. The repetition of frustrated narratives might point us to the idea that that's not where this is located. Like you can't. And it point, um, and it points to the fact that even in the wire, they they don't always solve it, but like, you know, like there is, there is like a sort of narrative closure in so far as like, you know what happened and you know what's ha- going on. And like, there's knowledge and such like, this is the thing with the police, right? Is like, these stories, this is why they're so powerful, is that they solve the crime every episode. Like, that's not how it is in real life. <laughs> you know? They're not there, like, they, you know, like, right, they're trying to solve crimes, but, like, it's very hard. They don't do it every week. And that's, that's not that's the Cocoa Cup version. And that's not, right? that's what we're talking about. And that's about not really ritual. their job. <laughs> no. It's population surveillance and control. Like, awkward yeah um okay well before we close out i want to just gesture back to the theme of the pod and think about the devil and demonization who would you say gets demonized in the cop shows klaus we've talked a little bit about this so far certainly we've seen it in the dragnet episode with mondo mabamba but klaus are there other sort of demonic figures or or deified figures angelic figures that you see that you wanted to know before we close out yeah i mean i think if you have a family if you're a character and you have a family in these shows like even if you mess up there's still room for you in heaven like it's it really is like this kind of natalist propaganda as much as it is as much as it is copaganda like so yeah i think like like guy who made a hard decision who has a family is like a tragic character at worst and a heroic character and so like the the sort of average citizen who is like i was i'm tempted to say like the white family is often uplifted in these shows as like really like the site of of american virtue but they also love they love the like sort of conservative black family too they're like oh like oh like you're you, maybe you're in the wrong part of town, but you're holding it down and, and you, you're you doing it the right way in spite of all this adversity. Like, cop shows love those families too, I think. And, you know, because of, like, this exception that proves the rule of theory that they're trying to they're trying to trade in. Right, absolutely. Yeah, I think of Mayor of Easttown also, the white family can also be a rationale for doing illegal things. And it's sort of like, oh, there's a the ground of morality shifts very slightly and makes room outside of the kind of coposphere of 
law-abiding citizen as good, you know, there's room also for breaking the rules. Well, I was protecting my husband. I was protecting my son. Right, um, right. That can also happen. Um, well, final thoughts? No, I mean, I think read the article. Um, it was fun doing the research for I mean, like, fun doing the research for I watched a lot of procedurals, and that was hard. The, the mayor of Easttown was fun. Like, it was fun at the beginning. It was fun at the end. I like Dragnet yeah. was fun because it's so campy and off like crazy. And there is a kind of like, like Webb is an artist, like an, an evil one, but like he has like a vision and he's doing a thing. Um, and so like, that's also interesting. And mayor of Easttown, high production quality, high acting quality, high writing quality. Good. Like wading through like hours of blue bloods, which we didn't talk about. And that's okay. You can read about it in the article. I wouldn't really advise even watching it. NYPD Blue, like other like other procedurals that I watched, a lot of like like Law and Order, like not a lot of joy there, um, because a lot of times like the, I think the religion, like the sort of the clerical angle, the religious angles are there, but they're so structurally subterranean that they're it's like not always like there's not always a ton to say about it, but yeah. Uh, it, anyway, it was fun doing the work. It was fun writing it, and I hope you get to enjoy reading it. For free, cost and loss, after website uh, of the of the revealer. Um, so yeah, great. Well, I really appreciated your taking us along on this journey. So thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan. Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.